I'm your host, Heather Evans. This week, our attention turns to something that has been in the news in our state recently, redistricting reform. You may all remember that back during the 2020 election, and gosh, that seems like a long time ago, not only did 75% of Virginia's voters make their way to a ballot box or vote by mail for president and our congressional representatives, but we also had an opportunity to voice our opinion on an amendment to our state constitution that created a bipartisan redistricting commission. That referendum vote shifted power away from the state legislature into a redistricting commission composed of state legislators and citizens. So today, we're going to examine this process to determine whether this shift is a good thing for our citizens and for our state. I'm joined today by two guests, Jonathan Winburn and Stephen Farnsworth. Jonathan Winburn is Professor of Political Science and the Director of the Social Science Research Lab at the University of Mississippi. Stephen Farnsworth is Professor of Political Science and International Affairs and the Director of the Center for Leadership and Media Studies at the University of Mary Washington. So thanks to both of you for joining me today. I think the best place for us to start is at the beginning uh, with the basics of redistricting. So Stephen, I'm actually gonna give the floor to you. Can you give our listeners a basic overview of how the redistricting process works? Well, the redistricting process varies greatly from one state to the next. The founders decided that a lot of the authority for elections would be handled at the state level. And so that means the process can vary very, uh, very distinct ways across the country. So in some states, uh, like Virginia historically has done, the party in power dictates the lines, which is great for the party in power. Uh, in other cases, you have had, um, in some cases, some states that have designed professional uh, redistricting staffers that people sort of like the Virginia version of JLARC, the uh, the Congressional uh, General Accounting Office or the Budget Office or something that is career staff making those kinds of calculations. Uh, and now, of course, we have uh, in Virginia with the new constitutional amendment that took effect this redistricting cycle, the idea that rather than having a partisan process, we'd have a bipartisan process. But because we set up the process to have an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, uh, it might not surprise anyone to recognize that uh, the uh, divisions, the partisan divisions in the country really kept us from handling any kind of system that uh, came up with any lines for any districts anywhere. Uh, they had yeah. the, they were charged with the congressional lines, the House of Delegate lines and the Senate lines. They failed all three. Uh, no lines uh, passed the commission on any of these. We now hand it off to the courts, which is usually, in fact, where these processes end up in Virginia anyway, because we have standards of uh, contiguousness and compactness in terms of how these lines are supposed to be drawn. But one of the things that politicians will often do to look out for themselves is to sort of push up against that limit of exactly what that means. And so the courts end up being sort of the final word on these things in Virginia. And it, if you think about the last 10-year cycle, we were still fighting over the lines in the courts two years ago. So it doesn't really ever end the process of redistricting here in Virginia. Uh, but as you look around the states um, and you see independent commissions or nonpartisan commissions, um, you can see how political this is and how these outcomes are often ending up uh, in the courts. It's a, it's a process that means a great deal to the politicians. And so they, uh, they invest a lot in it. And uh, the results often give us uh, kind of a gerrymandered dynamic in most of these states where uh, parties in power take care of themselves. 
Yeah. So you mentioned the word gerrymandering and there's a couple of different versions of gerrymandering. So specific to Virginia politics, which version are we really caring about right now? Is it well, partisan or is it, I mean, is it incumbent gerrymandering? What are we really thinking about when we move these commissions around? Well, the, in Virginia, it was always partisan. Um, although uh, there have been cases where they can buy in some support from other party, uh, other party members because of, of lines that are particularly compelling. Um, if, um, you know, if most of your uh, uh, listeners are from rural Virginia, you, you know that that's an area where Republicans are dominant and it's not a place where you can draw a lot of lines to advantage the Democrats. I mean, once you get out of, say, uh, say Roanoke or Blacksburg, um, that's going to be a pretty Republican district no matter where the lines happen to be. And those kinds of dynamics really create an opportunity where they might, uh, if the Republicans are in control, say, create a, a Roanoke Center district, drop all the Democrats in the region in there, and then and then the Republicans can win all the neighboring seats. And so there is a dynamic where uh, incumbent protection is part of the conversation. It's also true that this is a player, uh, a matter of concern when we're thinking about the process of uh, compliance with the Voting Rights Act and creating minority-minority districts. Because one of the things that the Republicans have done during their years of majority control over the redistricting process in Virginia was creating minority-minority districts that were very appealing to those incumbents who are minority um, because of the uh, the dynamics of racial voting in this country and in Virginia, if you create a largely African-American district and you pack as many African-Americans as you can into that district, the neighboring districts are going to be places where the um, Republicans are going to have a significant advantage. And so, uh, so really, I guess the answer to your question, Heather, is that there's a bit of both. I mean, you can't really separate one from the other, at least as we practiced it in Virginia historically. Yeah. And with my students, we talk about different forms of gerrymandering often. And they like to say that the racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering is really the, the kind of the same thing at this point in time. Uh, so, Jonathan, I want to bring you into this conversation. I mean, this is not new. The, the idea that here we have a state, Virginia, who, you know, the state thought about taking this power away from the state legislature, giving it more to citizens this isn't a new thing in the United States. There have been other states that have done this. So what is it that's really the catalyst for us thinking about moving redistricting away from state legislatures? Yeah, you're right. There has been, you know, the movement towards especially the citizen type commissions is relatively new. Um, I mean, historically, this you know, districting has been handled by state legislatures. Uh, there have been states that have had versions of commissions in place um, for a long time. But in terms of some actually bringing citizens in, um, California did, you know, was the first to go to a fully citizen commission back in 2010. Um, Arizona has a, a, a type of citizen commission that's been in effect since I think the 2000 round of redistricting. Uh, you know, and prior to that, all of the commissions were versions where either the legislatures, legislators themselves were on the commissions, or uh, in some cases, it may have been executive um, office positions like, you know, secretary of states or, or things like that, uh, or other sort of political elites were still, you know, primarily on the commission. So the move towards getting citizens involved in these commissions, like I said, we've seen that really take place over the last couple of cycles. You know, I know New York has added a version of a citizen commission. Um, Colorado has added uh, 
what they're calling an independent commission for 2020 as well. Uh, so we now see a handful of states. I don't I think it's around, you know, 10 to 15 states have some version of commissions and they all come in a little bit different uh, variety because uh, like Stephen said, the states have control over this. So no two commissions or the way states use their commissions work exactly the same. But yeah, this move towards bringing citizens involved, I think has really started to take off some as folks have started to realize that maybe it's not the best idea to let legislators draw their own lines or let those folks that benefit from the rules make the rules. There's this fear, right? That legislators being in charge of the redistricting process, that there's going to be bias and that perhaps citizens would be less biased. But is that, I mean, do we have data or anything that suggests that that is the case? Like are citizens more likely to be less partisan when gerrymandering, or I guess not gerrymandering, but would they be less partisan when trying to redistrict an area? Yeah, I don't, you know, so California did this in 2010, and I, I don't think we have a good sense of exactly what those citizen commissioners did, because partly because some of the constraints they, they had in place on what they could do with the maps. But I think the short answer is your average citizen's not joining these redistricting commissions, right? So these are folks that are still going to have, be involved in the process or, or know about the process. But I don't think there's any way to remove all bias from redistricting. It's just trying to find ways uh, to mitigate it. And I think getting citizens involved, it's not a perfect solution because I don't think there is one, but it does make it more transparent. It does open up the process and gets the public at least somewhat aware of what's going on. And I think that as much of anything is what, you know, these citizen commissions can accomplish. Uh, and, and part of sort of bias and how the lines are drawn, that partly depends on the rules that they have to follow. It partly depends on the maps that were in place the previous decade or two, um, because you're, you know, you're, all of these folks are coming in, no matter who's drawing the lines and they're, you know, they've got a rule book they have to follow, at least they're supposed to follow. And they have a long history of politics in this process and folks in these maps drawn in different ways and incumbents fighting for, you know, wanting to keep their own districts or whatever, you know, or, or all these other reasons. So it's not just they come in with a blank slate to completely draw these districts however they want. Yeah. Now, Stephen, here in Virginia, okay, what I experienced um, in 2020 was conversations with multiple groups here, some who were very pro-independent commission, pro-bringing in the citizens, pro-this amendment. Others, not so much. And it was interesting to me to compare how they were viewing this process at that point in time versus before. Um, so the Democrats, for instance, were some were pushing for this before 2020, and then during 2020 kind of changed their tune did you also sense that? Because I mean, you're here in Virginia and and you probably saw this as well <laughs> with, with people in the state legislature, correct? That's absolutely the case. You had um, a willingness to support this redistricting commission that crossed party lines at a time when no one was sure which party would be in the majority. And once it became clear after the 2019 election that the Democrats would control the governor's office in both chambers of the legislature, then um, some Democrats said, well, wait a minute, you know, we should do to Republicans what Republicans did to us 10 years ago. And so there was a, uh, a great deal of concern on the part of Republicans 
um, that the constitutional amendment would fall apart because the Democrats were now in the majority and they could stop it because under Virginia law, uh, the constitutional amendment only goes to the voters if the legislature approves it, then there's election and then it's approved again. And so um, the, the Democrats within their caucus fought over this question, but in the end, the decision was made to proceed. But it's important to note that this is simply not an independent commission. Um, this is a situation where you have elected officials and individual citizens on this process. And the process of selecting those individuals is put in the hands of the politicians. And so in many ways, this is a kind of a half measure uh, mm -hmm. redistricting design um, that will create an environment where very partisan Democratic citizens and very partisan Republican citizens, big donors, people who are activists, end up with those citizen positions. And so this isn't at all like a jury where random people are deciding the outcomes of these things. This is very much elected officials saying, well, we can't actually pick our own district, but we can at least pick the people who will design the district along with us. And in some of these committee meetings, you were even saw individual citizen members of these commissions looking to the uh, Republican leaders, looking to the Democratic leaders for, you know, how the party line uh, ruling would be on this particular proposed design and this this uh, this other particular proposed design. And so it was very much where the elected officials were still in the driver's seat in this process. They were sending cues to the citizens. And so you ended up with the uh, the very, very uh, powerful dynamic here of uh, this process. Citizens wanted a reform, but this was as far as the uh, legislature would, was willing to go. And so we don't have the full independent citizen design that keeps elected officials out of the room like you have in some states like in California. Right. And you don't have people from outside of the state doing this either. It's people from within the state and they are being picked by the, the people in the legislature. You're absolutely right. So let me let me pause for just a moment for those who might just be tuning in. Uh, hi, this is Red, White and Confused, and I'm your host, Heather Evans. You've been listening to a conversation between me and two guests, Jonathan Winburn, who is professor of political science and the director of the Social Science Research Lab at the University of Mississippi, and Stephen Farnsworth, who is Professor of Political Science and International Affairs and Director of the Center for Leadership and Media Studies at the University of Mary Washington. So let me turn back to that point you just raised, Stephen. So I will say as someone who again is in Southwest Virginia, when the list of citizens came out, right, that these citizens are going to be picked to serve on, you know, as part of this commission, as part of this redistricting commission, the first thing we noticed was there was only one person on there from Southwest Virginia, from Bristol, and that I think there's only one person who has uh, reported less than $100,000 income. So would it be safe to say like that, that this is definitely not something that really represents every single person in the state of Virginia? Well, that's absolutely true. Um, it's a collection of people who are richer and more politically connected than your average Virginian. Um, I think the, uh, you know, there's a good number of average Virginians who wouldn't want to be anywhere within a mile of this commission. And, uh, you know, and we can understand that might be a very rational process. I mean, think of all the time that those members spent on these commissions uh, to come up with zero uh, yeah. outcomes. You know, they were over three with their with their tasks. And uh, and so those people who didn't get picked, a friend of mine wanted to be on this commission more than anything in the world. And I said, believe me, you'll be glad you weren't picked. And, and he, I saw him the other day in the hall and he said, yeah, that's, that's true. It didn't turn out to be a good use of anyone's time. <laughs> 
So I don't know if you've noticed. So this today, so uh, we're we're having this conversation on Monday, uh, November fifteenth, and today is the day that um, the parties are supposed to be giving additional names to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in the state of Virginia rejected the three nominees by uh, the Republicans. Um, over the weekend, I guess on Friday, and also rejected one of the names from the Democrats. But even those names were very partisan from, especially from the GOP. Uh, and you mentioned your friend wanting to be on the commission. So the Democrats gave them all political scientists. Did you see the, the article on yes, this? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So uh, more of a, you know, here are, I guess you could say, um, experts who kind of study redistricting and, and all of those things that go along with it. Versus here are people who are definitely more tied to the, the party itself. Um, so today is the day they have to give their, their additional names to the Supreme Court. So Jonathan, I want to talk a little bit about some of the side effects of kind of having a commission beyond just having the legislature be involved in this process. One argument that gets made a lot is that if you have a redistricting commission, whether it looks like the one that Virginia has, which is half members of the legislature, half citizens, if you have an independent commission, whatever. If you do that, you will have more competitive elections. Is that true? The short answer is sometimes. Uh, the research shows that commissions in certain cases can lead to more competitive um, elections. However, it's not a super strong and consistent finding. You know, in some cases, there's an argument and some studies have shown that actually partisan gerrymandering can lead to more competitive elections. If a party is trying to maximize their seats uh, that they win, they'll try to make them all a little bit more competitive in hopes that they can win a few more. Uh, so it's really a, in trying to understand the effects of redistricting, it's almost always a mixed bag because it's oftentimes very sort of case specific to an individual state and the political political conditions within that state. Uh, so the, the push for competition is a common one that uh, uh, some reformers, you know, are, are that argue for. The Arizona Commission, for example, that is one of their primary, the, one of the primary focuses of the commission is to try to make the elections more competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, and the past couple of cycles, there's, you know, maybe at the margins, um, Arizona elections have become slightly more competitive but it, the commission doesn't seem to have had a huge long-term impact on competition there. Does it affect polarization? Once again, at the margins, polarization's such a big issue in, in our system that it is much bigger than redistricting, right? Every uh, couple of studies I've done and the other work out there pretty much showed that, I mean, polarization's a, a juggernaut in, in our country right now. And it's not, redistricting is not the primary factor for it. Uh, there's been some studies that show redistricting, or that, excuse me, polarization actually gets worse in between redistricting cycles than just at the beginning of a, you know, when the maps are first redrawn. Uh, so I think the short answer there is that polarization is much bigger than how folks are drawing these district lines. Now, does it have some impact? Yeah, probably at the margins. Uh, I think it, it may impact polarization, but polarization is much bigger than districting. Now, I know that some of your work, Jonathan, is also on um, what you term communities of interest. Mm -hmm. And I guess um, I would tell, I, I've had these conversations with students, like how do we, how should we draw the lines? And students will say, 
why don't we just take GIS technology and figure out just where do people live and then draw them on the basis of, say, cities or towns or communities? Does your work suggest that that's really how we should be doing it? Yeah, I don't know if I'd say it's how we should be doing it. I know there are some folks that will are definitely in favor of a much more automated process. Mm-hmm. There's some reform movements out there to say the way to make this more fair is to basically take people out of it, let the computers do it because it's hard to remove the biases that, you know, the biased people bring into this. But my work kind of has looked at this notion of protecting communities of interest and specifically uh, protecting political subdivisions, things that people, your average citizen can look at the map and they know what county they live they know what city they live in. And a lot of my focus is on figuring out ways to hopefully make this easier for the average citizen to know who represents them. And, you know, states that have these rules in effect that say outside of maximum of equalizing population, you have to protect, you know, county boundaries or communities of interest. When those rules are actually applied, um, it seems that there may be slightly less um, say partisan gerrymandering in, in some cases, but that's those rules are kind of usually secondary, right? Population equality is first and foremost. So folks can draw lines that sort of ignore those rules if they want in a lot of cases. There have been some cases where state Supreme Courts have sent usually state legislative maps back to the legislature to say you need to redraw them because you split too many county boundaries or, or something like that. But uh, so, yeah, so I think that is, you know, part of it uh, in terms, but that also depends on the state as well, right? In some states, it's much easier to think in terms of county boundaries or or city lines uh, and or other geographies than others. So it's easier to know who your representative is, right? Or just basic knowledge about government. If you can say, oh, I live in this county and then that county is represented by this person, then to have a county that's split up between like eight people. Um, so I, I, I think that it would be, I mean, perhaps encouraging for people to vote. And of course, their political knowledge would go up if communities were kept intact um, in terms of their the redistricting process. Now, Stephen, in Virginia, what have they been doing with communities of interest? Well, when you have... Um partisan line drawing as occurred after the 2010 census, there really wasn't much of a commitment to that. Um, One of the fastest growing areas in Virginia is the Prince William Loudoun County area in Northern Virginia. And it was an area that was predominantly Republican 20 years ago, but is now predominantly Democratic. And uh, the line drawers on the Republican and the Republicans were in the majority when the lines were drawn back in 2012 for the Congress, uh, decided that Prince William should be split in three different parts going to three different districts. And that created an environment where Republicans thought they could win two out of the three. And that actually happened. But from the point of view of Prince William County's influence in Congress, it's really, really undermined because it's an afterthought of three different members of Congress, not the the main event. But if you think about the size of particularly Prince William and Loudoun together, that's a big enough 
jurisdiction to be a congressional district all on its own. And in terms of community of interest, you know, these would be people who would be very connected to each other in terms of many of them are commuters or many of them have connections to uh, to the Northern Virginia politics and culture. Um, and so those kinds of things are you know, going to be undermined for political purposes. And uh, that was one of the reasons why people felt like it was time for a change. Uh, in Virginia. Uh, my guess is, though, that this particular change was so unappealing in execution that we, we won't have this system in place 10 years from now. Uh, my guess is that the new, uh, the new um, legislature or, over this cycle or the next cycle or the one after it will come up with another constitutional amendment to try something else. M my guess is that we wouldn't, um, we, we wouldn't be doing this again because, uh, you know, zero uh, for three is a pretty lousy batting average. That's very true. Um, so who do you think wins in this redistricting battle, I guess? If we want to call it a battle, uh, who, who wins? Do the people win? Do the, does, does a particular party win? Like who's the, who wins? Well, I, I'm of the opinion that the courts are going to be following the law of compact and contiguous nature, the questions of communities of interest, the questions of the Voting Rights Act, they're going to be paying much more attention to what the standards are than the individual politicians would have been or the individual politicians' surrogates, the citizens who were picked by the politicians on the redistricting commission. So I tend to think in the end, we'll end up with a system that is actually uh, less partisan uh, because of the failure of the partisan, bipartisan commission. The courts will come up with lines that match up relatively well with where Virginians are now. They'll be taking these things into consideration. Because after all, when you talk about these, um, these experts, they're called special masters under Virginia law, but basically we're talking about the redistricting experts put forward by the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, they're going to be trying to make the case to the, uh, to the judges about what the line should look like. And the argument that this is good for us politically, which one side or the other might make, that's just not going to work for the judges in the same way that it would for a legislative caucus. And so I, I tend to think that people are going to be better off. Um, as, as Jonathan mentions, you know, this doesn't necessarily create a whole bunch of uh, competitive districts. Uh, the reality is people are choosing where to live based on looking around and seeing whether there are people like them nearby. Um, and of course, you know, the divisions of Virginia are so dynamic in terms of the, the, what the rural electorate is generally like, what the urban electorate is generally like. And, uh, and so there isn't a lot of, uh, of, of bridge building uh, that's likely to take place. But certainly for the citizens, um, they, uh, they can feel like this process is going to uh, at least give them more of a sense of community than the other one would have. Yeah. And Jonathan, what do you think? Do you think that the citizens win in this process? Well, I think in terms of just if if by winning citizens are satisfied with sort of seeing behind the curtain a little bit and seeing what goes into this, then I think so. In terms of do they get district lines drawn exactly to their preferences, right? That very rarely happens. But I would add in general, most of the time in redistricting, it's the, it's the partisan or racial gerrymandering that's really drastic that gets the headlines. But most of the time in most states, the maps are more like incumbent protection plans. And that's one of the reasons why in, in some ways they're easier to pass and when the legislature controls it. So I think, you know, in most cases, that's one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but it is part of the reason why we often don't see very competitive elections in Congress is that incumbents, a lot of these lines are just drawn over time to you know, make the incumbent's life easier. So I think that's something that I don't think gets enough attention uh, 
from the media and other folks when they look at redistricting because it's not as sexy, right? It's the blatant partisan gerrymander or whatever that tends to really get the attention. But I think a lot of times it's, you know, incumbent gerrymandering that sort of goes under the radar here. Okay, so when it comes to how citizens feel about independent commissions or just moving these things away from the legislature, what does the data tell us, Jonathan? Yeah, some recent surveys show that just over half, about 55% of survey respondents said that they would prefer an independent commission handle redistricting, and only about 15% said that the state legislature should be in charge. Um, so there is you know, some evidence that citizens, when they think about this, do think of it that independent commissions could be you know, a, a better way to do this. Well, thanks again to both of you for joining me today to talk about this very complicated process, one that obviously citizens are for and hopefully will uh, win under, you know, be advantaged under. But this process is long and complicated and very partisan. Um, As of right now, there are two special masters that are supposed to be uh, selected from uh, the the list that's being given to the Virginia Supreme Court, as Stephen was mentioning. And then those individuals are not supposed to have any contact really with outside sources and come up with a plan to present before the court regarding the redistricting process here in Virginia. Uh, And that's, you know, time will tell as to what the districts look like for the House of Delegates, the Virginia Senate, and then of course, uh, Congress. So thanks again for being here on the show. You've given me a lot to think about. I hope that they've given you guys out there a lot to think about as well. If you have missed any piece of this program, you can listen again on Spotify or wherever you download your podcasts. I've had a great time this week. I hope you have too. Have a great week.